Get back to our seats. You know, one of the things that was brought to my attention when I was speaking at the beginning is that some of those things were not in your, in your notes. I apologize for that. And certainly every word is very valuable, so capture them all. I'm really kidding. Hopefully you know I know. Um, <clears throat> when we look at the different styles of parenting, and I'll kind of go over that briefly, you have authoritative, and these are, I mean, these are widely known in the literature. It's all over the place. Authoritative parenting and the books that really fit with that are boundaries with kids and then they also have boundaries with teens. So the whole boundary series is very good. Parenting with love and logic and also scream-free parenting. Don't you love that title? Scream free. Scream. Yeah. Scream. There are actually some, yeah. We can... uh, I love boundaries. The whole boundary series is very good, but with adult children, very powerful. Yeah. And then there's the authoritarian style of parenting... That's basically the militaristic style, right? The one that says it's my way or no way. And then permissive parenting was the last one. I like to really start with that to do a self-inventory. And part of it, you know, with any lay counseling or a professional counselor, is being fully aware of my own issues, I don't. I mean, it's, I can send one for you. No, I think it's me. Yeah. <laughs> it's me. I'll take ownership. Um, is that we're in that position of really first, I think, looking within, because oftentimes there's this notion, and you'll, you'll, I don't know if you've already learned about this, but transference, counter-transference, to where someone is presenting an issue to me and I can really identify with what they're saying, and it can resonate with me. And as a result of that, it could potentially cloud how it is that I'm counseling them, that I could end up having my own stuff and my own issues really affect what it is that I'm um, communicating to them, and I'm missing out on what the Lord's really trying to, to speak through me, right? And it's no different with parenting, you know, many times, and this is really important with the parents that you're going to be working with in the, uh, in the counseling environment, is that their own fear of failing their child is wrapped up many times in their own past. And that's a great thing for you to be able to explore. And their desire to undo their own negative experiences. Isn't that a big reason why we become very emotionally charged and attached to certain things that we want to work out with our own children? is that if, if I was verbally abused as a child, I want to make an effort to 100% go the opposite direction because I know how that felt. And is that necessarily what's best for that child? 180 degrees the other way isn't necessarily the best thing, is it? Right? So being able to really talk with parents about what is it about their own past and maybe something they're trying to work out, some negative experience that they're trying to work through. 
You know, I had here in your handout, it says, ask yourself, I love these questions, in this present situation, do I feel overly charged about how my child should feel? And why? Does it remind me of anything particularly painful that happened to me as a child? If so, is my child experiencing the same intensity of this feeling as I did in childhood? Does my child's previous experience in this area equal the deprivation or pain of my own childhood experiences at the same age? Am I seeing a pattern emerge here? Or is that my fear that this pattern will emerge? Or is it milder or not, not comparable? Do I know the range of what is normal distress in the situation? Or this is key. Or am I confused by the reminder of my own pain? It's important to be fully aware of that and from you coming into the counseling situation as well. And what's the meaning of this experience to my child? And what does he or she truly need right now? Separate from what I'm emotionally invested in. How is my child's experience different than mine? This is a big, big, important question. One of the things that when I have parents that I'm meeting with, that I'll start going through and say, you know, you, you're clearly very emotionally charged about this situation. Help me understand why is that. Tell me about how your parent reacted to you. Was there a similar situation? What did they say? What did they do? And if there is something there and you have that connection and you pull that together, you obviously see tears. You see a floodgate of emotion, which tells you that there's some work that needs to be done. And there's also some work that is impacting how they're parenting their child. It's sometimes easy for us to identify with wounds that we had as children and to swear, you know what, we're not going to do this. I'm just not going to do this. There's no way that I'll do this to my child. And one of the examples I gave is that the verbally abusive parent, so then I just dote and love and I provide no firm boundaries verbally with my child. Is that truly being attuned to what their needs are? It's really not. That's a great thing for you in a lay counseling opportunity is to say, it sounds like that your mother or father was really verbally abusive, really came down hard on you for things that were hard for you to understand why. And then what did you do? You walked on eggshells. You moved around. How is that being played out right now with your child? And you're really taking it. It sounds like that you really want to make sure you don't have your child experience what you did. Or maybe you're going too far with it. And it's important for us to realize that my child is a completely different person with a completely different set of experiences. Who God created them to be unique in his image. That takes us to yielding. So we see here, I come into this world, I have the opportunity to have connection with that parent, the, the person um, that God has entrusted to take care of me. I start to step out on my own, my sinful nature becomes quite clear, right? Extinction burst. I want to say no, I want to be heard, I want to blaze my own trail. And then we come into the place of yielding, being able to know that as a child that my parent has good intentions for me, wants me to do well, wants me to be able to succeed ideally, not in all situations. 
So when we look at this, as my child faces frustrating situations and challenges, does my need to rescue my child inhibit their growth? The need to make sure that they don't fall down too far, that they don't get too scratched up, that they don't get too hurt, because why? They won't be able to take it. That's one of the things uh, for parents of adult children who have come um, many times, and this is a common trend, and certainly when I say these things, please know this is not like a universal statement, but um, can be a common trend, that as we start to talk about, well, my, my child is at home, uh, he won't get a job, you know, he hasn't finished school, I'm having a hard time really uh, motivating him to do anything, and as soon as we start to really kind of peel back the layers what we saw many times was this history of enabling. I will do for you. I will take care of it. Oh, I need, I need my subtle things, like I left my homework at home. All right, I'll go ahead and leave work. I'll go home. I'll get it, and I'll bring it to you. When do you need it? What, what time? By what time? And start can start very small, that rescuing. And essentially what I've seen oftentimes that we're communicating to that child, you're incapable of doing this on your own. You need to have me. I need to be present in your life. And we start to really draw that out. The vast majority of parents are like, wait, whoa, uh-uh, they're 24, you know? I don't, no, they don't need me anymore, right? And so we have to do the hard work of being able to set some of those boundaries. And when we see this idea of how, how is it that I'm going to help my child in this place of yielding, is that they have the opportunity to take on situations. Um, we talked about optimal frustration. We see that here at the top of your notes. So while we seek to meet our child's needs, we will sometimes frustrate them, which is okay. The goal is to provide a framework in which the frustration itself becomes a tool for building strength of character. How do I do that? There's this notion of scaffolding. We know that in a, a builder sense, right, what scaffolding is for it's there to provide some structure and stability until the stability is present. And it's the same thing in rearing up a child is with scaffolding, I have the opportunity to act out that I'm a facilitator of that child's growth, not the engineer. As they're able to do a little bit more, I let out a little bit more rope, right? The example of a simple example of uh, being in the, the playscape at McDonald's, that I have a chance to give them the support, but it, as soon as they're capable of going back up and I hear the, eh, am I immediately running to and saying, what, what, what? Let me come to your rescue, right? No, I want to make a point to say, you've done it once before. Stop, calm down, and try to think of a solution. I don't have to rescue you. That's part of scaffolding. I've built that support, but I'm slowly peeling layers back. And when I look at that, one of the ways, how do we do that? What are the skills that are essential for scaffolding? And you see that here in your notes as well. We know that warmth, praise. We're going to talk about this, the power of reinforcement. And also adjustment and response to the cue of the child. And the use of questions, not commands. One of the things that you'll see there in your notes too is that when you're really trying to... Uh, help a child develop social problem-solving skills, I want to make sure that I'm not telling them every single step of every single thing, and I'm making sure that I'm mapping out their life for them. I'm not promoting any sort of independence. So when you're talking with parents, again, 
And part of your role as a lay counselor is going to be helping them identify what are they bringing with them that they're passing on to their child. And how many times have we all done it? I swear I would never say that, you know. But here I am, and I'm repeating the same thing that my mom said to me, to my child. And that's part of what we'll see with this notion of generational sin as well. But when we look at this with scaffolding, I have a great example that I uh, love when my, uh, and, and I really try to pass this on with my own kids, but my dad um, wasn't always the most patient man. I mean, he's still, I say that like he's not here, he's still alive, but uh, isn't always the most patient man. You know, one of the things uh, when I was playing basketball, and um, many of you know my brother Chris, a very gifted athlete. I was the one that had to work harder to, to be an okay athlete. And so the, the whole thing with a left-handed layup and the mechanics of that, and we were um, at a basketball court, and I was consistently messing it up and coming off the wrong foot. And my dad at that time was being extremely supportive and breaking it down, helping me see the steps. And my first thought was, I just I want to give up. I can't do it, Dad. I can't do it. And I, one of the things that he said, that's one of these things that I pass on, is that he said, can't is not a word in your vocabulary. We just need to try harder. And that was one of the things that I, I love that notion of it's not practice makes you perfect, practice makes us better. There's no such thing as perfection, right, when it comes to our abilities. And so one of the things that, in really kind of instilling that with me, that's something that I've in turn attempted to try to pass on to my kids. Well, it stopped with the left-handed layup because there was another time driving a standard, which, you know, there's not many cars that are like that anymore. Well, there is, I mean, there was a hill that was literally like as big as this in our a bump, really, okay, in our neighborhood. <laughs> I could not get first gear over the bump. So my dad is all the way down at our driveway and just like, for the love of Pete, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. You know, an example of how his own sinfulness. And so I got there and he's just like, are you kidding me? Clearly we'll never have a, a standard for you. We must get an automatic. <laughs> so, you know, an example of how that, that, that place of scaffolding, um, it's the same thing when I'm teaching a child to walk. And we see these are great examples. And so for our um, little girl, Rachel, is that I'm going to be moving slowly away, giving them the opportunity to step out. And she's going to fall some. She's going to skin her knee some. Sure, I'm there to pick her up and to give her support. You know, an example of this that I think is important that you can use in application for um, your uh, people that you'll be working with is uh, to have the individual you're working with to look into a mirror and simulate the last comment that they gave to their child the one that typically they're beating themselves up for, that they're having difficulty getting over, or even maybe that they're out of touch with. Have them look into the mirror and then simulate then how their parents spoke to them. And what people often see, and I've had clients that I've done this with, they many times are drawn to tears because they see the same exact thing that hurt them so deeply that they saw from their parent. They're communicating the same thing non-verbally. And what do we know? That 93% of communicative intent, what's the meaning behind communication is nonverbal. It's not even the words that we say. It's going to be how we posture, what our face looks like, what our eyes are communicating. It's a great exercise for someone to come in tune with, wow, I'm holding on to a lot. There's a lot that I'm really not realizing that is affecting how I am as a parent. So we see here as far as the importance of quality time and being on the, uh, on, the child's, on the child's level. And we see that's an important part of scaffolding. And one of the things that we want to communicate, and Gary Landreth, who um, if any of you have gone to 
Sam Houston State University, or the University of North Texas. He's big in the world of play therapy. Um, has some really great principles here of what you want to do in, in communicating in the quality time that you spend with your child and letting the child take the lead. This is an important tip for, for parents as well, is that what you're communicating is, is that I'm here, I hear you, I understand, and I care. I am present with you. <clears throat> you know, the uh, one example of this with quality time, and this is really not related to the exact point I just made, but it's a funny situation recently, but uh, as far as with that quality time and that I'm here, that I'm present, and this is one of the things that you'll often see as parents, uh, you know, that dads have that guilt, moms have that guilt of, I wish I could be spending more time. I wish that I could be present. What do we know about the nature of things and the state of things in our world in this economy is that people are having to work more, they're away from the home more, just to be able to pay bills and to put food on the table. One of the things that you'll probably often encounter as we're hopefully hitting a recovery in our country is that many times parents are left feeling inadequate. I should be doing more for my child. Uh, I should be having more quality time. Well, let's emphasize the time that you do have, right? Shoulds and musts. Um, one of the things I think I learned this from you, Paul, don't should on yourself. <laughs> uh, that's an example of how we can think, obviously, very incorrectly about how it is that we uh, feel that we should be uh, when, in fact, I have the opportunity to still be a connector with my child. Uh, and one of the things with quality time, and obviously with uh, my line of work, most of my hours are in the evening and in the afternoon. And, uh, and so as a result of that, I end up missing some things that my kids have, but really try to be present there uh, on the weekends. And uh, my son is currently playing soccer at the Y, uh, which is fun. I mean, it's just, you know, kids running around all chasing a ball in a big mob, you know. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, but one of the things, and this was great, and I told my wife about this afterwards, that when I went up on Saturday and they'd had a couple practices that I hadn't been able to be at, and uh, this one dad came up and I said, hi, you know, uh, I'm Greg. And he said, well, I'm so-and-so. And he's like, you're the dad that hasn't been at any of the practices. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. And I want a special award for that. I really did, so I won the Inadequate Dad Award, and you just really struck a nerve that's very vibrant in me right now, so thank you for that, you know, and then when we were leaving, when we were leaving the game, he was just, uh, I was like, hey, great job coaching, you did an awesome job, and uh, I was helping with the kids at goalies, and he's like, and you know what, he goes, James actually was a pretty good goalie today, up till now, he was pretty terrible, you know, I was like, Another one, man. Thank you. I'm going to sock that away. You know what? I'm going to write that down and put that in his memory book, you know? <laughs> oh, it was great. Uh, like they have a sense of humor, you know, but uh, one of those, like, what does that mean? Are you kidding? My son's going to go on to be the next Pele, you know? <clears throat> but that example of quality time, I think, is absolutely an uh, essential thing that we can help parents with, and especially with the state of things it's important to resonate with that. And you guys know that in that reflective listening piece that when you're um, doing that in, in friendship or in counseling is to have the opportunity to reflect back what it is that you hear someone is communicating. And every parent, uh, vast majority that I have now are, are faced with the same thing. You know, they're, I don't have enough. We can't do enough. There's not enough time. I feel like if I only had more time, I'm in crisis right now because, you know, we're struggling to, to make ends meet. Um, this is something that we're going to see 
uh, for a while now, definitely. Now, <clears throat> when we look at um, discipline, and this is not in your notes, so you may want to put that in there. That's a big important part of limit setting while I'm being the loving, nurturing parent who is walking alongside my child and giving them support, helping them learn independence, I'm also setting limits. It's not a free-for-all, right? It's not the opportunity to do everything you want to do. And typically, limits are met with resistance. You're taking away what I want. I don't like it. I want to have free access. And if you look at Gary Landreth, look right down the letters A-C-T, great acronym, ACT. A is acknowledge the feeling and intent of the child. One that I said recently, I can see you're frustrated with your sister and you really want to pummel her. I didn't say pummel, but you want to hit her. <laughs> C, communicate the limit. Hands are to be kept to yourself. T, target the alternative. This is absolutely critical. And what we often don't do, and I'm still guilty of as a parent, target the alternative. Give them what it is that is appropriate or acceptable. You can use your words, right? Or you can come get us. You can walk away and go kick your soccer ball as hard as you can in the fence. No. <laughs> you know, ultimately, whenever we, when we think of this, this notion of a replacement behavior, and I'm really big, and this is part of being a, a, striving to be a board-certified behavior analyst, is looking at the power of reinforcement. You know, an extinction burst happens because something that was historically reinforced is not anymore. And there's resistance. Whoa, whoa, you're changing the rules. I don't get this anymore. I don't get the attention the way that I used to. Well, then it's on, right? Until we give some sort of replacement. We give them the opportunity to say, this is how you can get my attention in a more appropriate way. And that's when you look at this pattern, this notion here of reinforcement and punishment. Reinforcement is shown to be much more effective in maintaining gains over time because we're shaping appropriate behavior. Absolutely a critical, critical thing. And reinforcement means that I'm increasing a behavior. Pick one, room cleaning, picking up toys, more respectful talk. Positive, I'm adding something to the environment. You have the opportunity to access a favorite activity earn extra allowance, or just praise, or more time doing something that you enjoy doing. Negative reinforcement, and this, this word is often used incorrectly, that basically says I'm removing something from the environment to increase the likelihood that a certain behavior will increase. So I want you to go and clean your room, which is a start behavior. I want you to go do that. You're not going to be able to do that. Uh, you're not going to be able to play your game system. I'm taking that away until you go clean your room. So I'm taking something out of the environment to in increase the likelihood that the room cleaning will occur. Punishment. And actually negative reinforcement, what we're typically doing with that timeout is actually a negative reinforcement procedure. Timeout means what? And oftentimes, and I've seen this um, with people many times, it's used incorrectly so much. Uh, and the power of timeout is timeout from reinforcement. 
It's not having access to, in line of sight or sound or interchange with an adult, any sort of attention. And that's if attention has been maintaining the inappropriate behavior. I'm doing this type of thing, right, in a way to get your attention. As a, as a consequence, then you will have to go to timeout to increase what behavior? Seeking my attention more appropriately. I want to see you do that more appropriately. And what do we often see is that if, if timeout's working effectively, you're going to see behavior change happen pretty quickly. And typically it's a minute for the age of the child. And we've started timeout with our uh, little one-and-a-half-year-old um, just because, whoo, she is a pistol. She is really, and it's, timeout is just as much for adults, you guys. I think it's important to say that. It really is. Like, I'm up to here. Um, and so it's a chance for me to have a break as well. And that's important to be able to communicate that to parents to say, you know, the timeout, mom or dad, is because parents would say, timeout doesn't work. It's ineffective. It does nothing. It doesn't work. Well, and oftentimes I would say it's being done incorrectly many times when we start to talk about it and they explain how they did it. But I always make a point to say, use it for yourself. Have a breather. Have the opportunity to kind of, you know, get away. And ultimately, what do we see for kids that we introduce timeout? They're not going to just stay there because I've said one time, go ahead and stay on, you know, the naughty spot, as the super nanny does. But um, to stay in a chair, and we have a specific chair in our study that the the kids will sit in. And so um, they don't automatically just stay there. Part of what I have to do is, in a way of having all verbal attention removed, have the child guide them back, sit them there, turn away. And sometimes that means I'm physically, as they're a young child, physically giving no attention while she's seeing she's required to sit. And you're not going to get up until you're quiet. And even with our one-and-a-half-year-old, as Joy would attest to, she's, really, she's responding to it, but it, obviously it takes work on the front end. But timeout is a negative reinforcement procedure. Punishment typically has to be increased to have the same effect. You know, um, in looking in the world of autism, there is a school um, in upstate New York called that uh, affectionately has been termed the school of shock. Um, it's really, I think it's deplorable, but what they do is that for kids who have extensive behavioral issues, um, who are on the autism spectrum or have cognitive delays or typically both, um, who are having some pretty significant aggressive behavior, they've actually affixed these backpacks to them that elicit a shock that can be given by, you know, you think of like the dogs in the front yard, right? Across the wire, they're like, hee um, That's the, It's the same principle, which I think is deplorable that you would do that with a human being. And there's been countless lawsuits, and it's never, been, uh, it's never been closed down because the parents who send their kids there are just thankful that they're, you know, semi-cared for. And even though their quality of life, I would argue, is pretty poor. But in that sense, what, we, what they've shown is that the intensity of the shock has to continuously be increased to get the same effect. That's the notion of punishment. Whenever I'm doing any sort of uh, punishment procedure, yes, I'm decreasing a behavior, but I'm typically only squashing it for a short period of time because I'm not focusing on an alternative behavior that I'm reinforcing. This is a very important point that I always communicate to parents that ends up being a breakthrough many times is to think, what is it that I want to reinforce? What is it that I want to give my time, effort, and attention to? Rather than thinking about what else can I take away? What else can I ground them for? You know, there's some kids that will come into my practice and they're like, let's see, I'm grounded till I'm 32. I only have a mattress in my room. There's no door on the frame. 
Um, I've worn the same clothes for 15 days. Um, I go to school with a, you know, an armed guard. You know, it's at some point, and I'm like, and they're like, oh, I still sneak out and go with my friends, you know. <clears throat> and then parents are like, what else do we do? Have we made any emphasis on what behavior we want to increase? What is it? What behavior do we want to see improve? Because what we're essentially doing in that situation is that punishment only squashes for a short period of time. It suppresses inappropriate behavior. And I, we use punishment, obviously, in, in our home. Positive punishment is adding something to the environment. Increasing chores because the child was eating in their room. Spanking is a positive punishment. Positive means you're adding to. Um, and then negative is removing something from the environment. You know, I want to go ahead and um, to, to jump ahead so that we have time for um, questions. And let's move to identifying with, and this is really in adolescence, the plight of the teenager, which you'll get with a, a lot of, um, certainly a lot of people you'll be counseling. What do we know? There's that quest for autonomy and a development of my unique identity that's different from you, right? I want to know who it is that uh, I am, and then I want to have that flourish. So that's when you start to see some... Um, rebellion that can be more pronounced. So even though it might not feel like it, the parent is still a secure home base that the teen can rely on for security and acceptance. And we also need to balance my need for control and then also the teen's urge for freedom. And I often ask parents, what are your non-negotiables? The things that are basically not up for discussion. You know, I've had some parents that come back and they list out like 52 things. I'm like, really? 52 non-negotiables? The bed will be made every day. I'm like, and you're willing to die on that, right? I mean, you want to die on that sword. The bed will be made every day. And, and that might be an important part of that family, but it's important for, for us as we're encouraging parents to think, what are their non-negotiables? What is it? What battles are they truly choosing to, to fight? And in boundaries with teens, um, where I pulled a lot of these principles here, um, really effective approaches. Talk less, listen more. That's really hard because what oftentimes do we see the teenager is silent. It's piercing the silence. And when you ask questions and you're carefully crafting and thinking of an open-ended question, I've been told open-ended questions, open-ended, open-ended, no yes, no's. And then, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. You're just like, oh, what happened to my child, right? The one that was so talkative. Listen more, even if that means longer pockets of silence. Use questions like, help me understand. Help me understand where you're coming from. Starting questions like that. Get to know friends and parents of friends. Have regular family meetings and time together. And I always, tell, I always encourage parents to do this, even if you're meeting a great deal of resistance. Starting early certainly helps, helps set the precedence. It's an opportunity in a non-threatening way to be able to work out frustrations rather than always waiting for in the moment. In the moment, our emotions are up here, and many times we're not productive problem solvers. Having the opportunity to say, this is something that we need to talk about at our family meeting, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to assign a time limit for how much time it is that we're going to review it. And in the family meeting, give everyone a turn to take the lead. Everyone gets a chance to be a facilitator. And we have a chance to come back and reach 
a solution together while our heads are clear. Engage in problem solving about things like chores, phone use, internet use. Uh, and one of the things that I've seen that's effective that you can, um, can, can be really helpful whenever that relationship is reestablished with the teenager. The relationship has to be there first before there's an ongoing discussion and dialogue about the things that you want them to do. It's having the teen come up with, and this often happens in counseling, consequences that they feel like are appropriate. They understand that limits are going to be set. What I often seen for the teenagers that are willing to do that is in, many times they're more severe on themselves than what the parent was ever intending to be. And then the parent comes back and is like, wow, you're really hammering yourself, you know. Why don't we not go that extreme? Let's kind of bring it back here, which helps build more of that bond. In boundaries with teens, there are um, four different anchors that we see here. Love, truth, freedom, and reality. Love, I'm on your side. I care about your welfare. I have your best interest at heart. And that's essential. We never stop doing that as parents, even through adulthood. Truth, I have some rules and requirements. I think it's important for parents to be able to establish those ahead of time, right? And you can't anticipate every possible scenario, but around the basic things that are often the sources, most common sources of conflict, have a discussion ahead of time and to say, this is the expectation, rather than waiting and reacting. Freedom, you can choose to respect or reject the rules. You're basically embracing the fact that they're autonomous human beings. We can't take away their power to choose, which is really hard with the authoritarian parent, right? I will bring the hammer down harder. Anchor four, reality. Here's what will happen if you reject the rules. And conversely, if you embrace the rules. I think it's important to be able to say that. Hey, good things happen. Good things consistently happen for you. I want you to have access to great things in this world. And part of that is embracing the expectations that are set forth, as well as what you hope and dream for. And I'm there to walk alongside and to help you guide and direct you in that. And know that resistance is normal. It's going to happen. It's typical. <clears throat> you know, and I want to bring it back to what I said at the very beginning, which is in looking at this road of parenting, and hopefully for you guys as counselors, is helping the parents identify with how they were parented. I think that's an essential thing. And also really helping them embrace the notion of grace. And that God's grace is sufficient, and then there's no such thing as a perfect parent. Absolutely there's not. And that's one of the things that I often make point to tell parents right when they come in. I'm not coming to you as someone who has it 100% figured out and is blameless. I, too, am a sinner, um, but I also know that I've received training and experience, right, to help guide and direct and to help facilitate this. And I'm not emotionally in your situation like you are. And we can walk this road together. Thank you, guys. I certainly want to take a chance for any questions that you may have. Question? Anybody have one? Oh, this one. Okay. I have a question about this adolescent counseling thing here. This... Um, Sounds kind of scary to me because uh, we were in a parent support group for about four years in another city, and 99% of those adolescent problems have to do with drugs and things like that. So does that get a little bit over our heads, would you say? 
Okay, you're going to... That was a little muffled. I'm sorry. I heard drugs and... Okay, I can project. Here, is that we better? All, we all need some? No. All right, so... So isn't it, isn't it true that with adolescent issues, just like 99% of these things have to do with drugs and uh, things like that? Seems like we, we we saw this in a you know in a parent support group we were in for a few years, and they're just almost all the cases there, Christian parents included, had to do with drugs. So does that get a little bit over our heads? As lay counselors, yes. I mean, if you, and that would be my opinion. Obviously, Paul would give you guidance as well. But that's when it's important to seek outside outside counsel. I mean, certainly for any sort of drug and alcohol abuse, that there are professionals that are trained to help parents walk through that. Uh, we received extensive training. And so I think it's important to, uh, you know, to make sure that you go ahead and help them seek a referral. And what's interesting is that, you know, whenever, and there is great affluence, obviously, in the woodlands. And with great affluence comes a lot of free time and a lot of disposable income. And with that, what do you see? That there is a lot of recreational drug use. I mean, I hear that from the vast majority of teenagers that I work with in my practice is that everybody. And then you're like, really, everybody? And they're like, you know, they start naming like more than two handfuls full of people that they know by name. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's an important thing. But yes, I believe that would be a good time to refer. Mm -hmm. All right. Fantastic. Thank um, you, guys. Ruth, had, there were a couple of questions for Ruth. Did you want to address those before we end? Want to come up here? Thank you, Greg. That was awesome. Um, there are a couple of questions that were uh, written down after Ruth's talk, and so she's going to address those briefly, and then we'll wrap up and get you guys out of here. Thank you, Paul. That was great. I mean, Greg. <laughs> I'm sorry. You are Paul. You are Greg. Um, these were really good questions, so I didn't want. I wanted to honor uh, the people that wrote these questions. One, um, when a client uncovers the container, remember I talked about creating for some clients a a the image of a container. Um, how do you help them to put it back in the container at the end of the session? I didn't really get to address that. And there are a number of ways that you can do that. If you have done it as an actual metaphor that you've created, help the client create a, a visual image of their container, you can return to that and say, okay, we're, gonna, we're, we're out of time. Um, now, now picture that container, and we're going to take that container, and we're going to just imagine that you're putting your putting this pain that we've been handling, we've been talking about, and we're, you're just going to put it away. And, you're, and you know that there's not a lock on the container. You can take it out whenever you choose to. But for right now, since you have to go pick up your kids, you have to go back to work, um, you're choosing to put it back in the container. Now picture you're putting it back on the shelf. Um, you know, and then and see if that helps them to return to more of a place of calm, more of a place of, of, of reality based. If, if you haven't used an actual image like that, you can simply you just make sure that there's time at the end of the session. You know, so how are you feel? What are you feeling right now? How are you doing? Are, do you feel safe to leave? Um, let's pray together before you go. Um, and just kind of walk them, walk them through again, reinforce, you know, this is going to be all right. Um, it doesn't feel all right yet, but I'm with you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to be with you. Make sure that you have what you need as you walk through this really difficult time in your life. But for right now, you know, just be, be aware of your surroundings. You're going to be okay. Go do what you need to do. And, you know, call me if you need 
to debrief about something during the week if if that's if you're available to do that. So just kind of bringing them back to the present, to the reality of the life that they have to leave your office and return to. Um, the other question is, um, does Dr. Matty, the, the man I said that has done all this hardiness research, does his research with hardy people versus non-hardy look at how this relates to their trust or faith in God? And I love this question because that's exactly where I want to go with it. In my um, review of literature, I haven't found a whole lot of research linking, you know, is there something different about how people of faith of strong religious faith, um, how, how they are going to re react or respond or recover from traumatic experiences. And, you know, if you look in the scriptures, um, in fact, I had opened my Bible and I just want to read this and I will be quiet after this. Why did I close it? Darn it. It's in um, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, um, where Paul is kind of... Uh, uh, giving an account, it's the scripture about the jars of clay. Um, we, we have re renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. Um, and then he, he speaks of, um, we, have, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. So from that, that's an example of if you are a person that knows that God is for you, you have every advantage in overcoming a trauma, I, I would think, from somebody who does not have that conviction that God is, that I can go through the most awful experience, I can be hard-pressed, I can be perplexed, I can be crushed, I can be pressed down, but I'm not destroyed because if God is for me, who can be against me? Mm -hmm. Well, we're right at, at the end of our time. I hope you're hearing through all of this that all of our human relationships are meant to prepare us for God. To the extent that they are successful and satisfying, they increase our hunger for more love, more relationship. But to the extent that they fail us, to the extent that they frustrate us, they also increase our need to turn to God. And so we um, get to be that person to stand in the gap, to bridge the gap, and help people to realize that even in their suffering, there is a God who cares, a God who is there, who will, at the end of the day, settle all scores make everything right, and present us in his own presence, fully complete, fully whole. As counselors, we get to, um, to be that uh, parental figure like Paul was with the, with the early church, um, saying, look, I want you guys to grow up. I want you to be able to eat solid food, but you're still nursing at the bottle. And so much of our work as counselors, as members of the body of Christ, is to encourage our own souls to get up, to show up, to fess up, to re-up, to grow up into all the things that God has made us to be, to be the bride of Christ, fully complete, without spot and blemish. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great and awesome adventure that you have called us to, this path of development 
that challenges us at every turn to reorient our hearts toward you, to be tender, to be solid, to be yielding and surrendered, and to be courageous as we mature in you. God, stir up in us your spirit. Fill us fresh today. Lord, let us metabolize to, to chew on what we've heard today, to make it a part of our, of our souls, that we may be better equipped to grant the grace that we have received to those that we come in contact with. We honor you at the center of all things. We ask that you go with us as we leave this place. Keep us safe. Watch over us. In Jesus' name, amen.